All right. So, like I said, we are going to be driving on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, if you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand. Uh, you can get one of these white Bibles back there, page 574. You'd be good to go. Um, so I want to give a really brief recap of a lot of the things that we've talked about so far um, as major themes throughout 1 Thessalonians, because a lot of it's going to be um, basically coming to a head tonight and next week. At the end of the day, the main theme that we have traced over and over and over again in 1 Thessalonians is the notion of Christ's return and that how, uh, we are, how we are to view his return. And so Paul has talked all the way through the first couple of chapters, even with explaining why him and Timothy have not been able to, uh, or him and Silas and Timothy have not been able to go and see the church again was because they were ministering in other ways, but yet they were still anticipating the return of Christ. And what we really saw there in chapter 4 is like the only time Paul ever really um, gave a corrective. He, he talks about two specific things um, that Alex actually preached about um, right before spring break. Um, and we're going to see some of that come back up again tonight, but we've really been focusing on Paul encouraging the church to keep doing what they're doing. Generally speaking, this church has had a lot of good things going for him. And he's basically, in chapter um, 4 and 5, uh, he's basically been, um, at the end of chapter 4, beginning of 5, is answering a couple of specific questions about eschatology. And if you remember, I've said all along that I think the reason that a lot of people avoid First Thessalonians is because they're scared of the eschatology stuff there in those two chapters. However, that wasn't even the main point in those sections. It was really about encouraging believers as to how they are to live in light of Christ's return. Are we tracking with that? So, if you need to catch up on any of this stuff, feel free to follow along with us on YouTube and on Spotify. We have all of our stuff recorded there. Um, so if you need to spend more time catching up, by all means, do that after the fact. I would encourage you to do so. So, tonight... What we're going to do is we're going to look at a series of commands that Paul's going to just rapid fire. He's going to shoot off um, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, and we're not really going to look at hardly any of them. We're not really going to focus on each of those individual commands. Even though every one of them merit their own intensive look, I just feel like there's something else that starts off in verse 12 that we need to focus on a little bit more. So we're going to look at this conglomeration of commands, and we're going to see how Paul is actually instructing the church to go uh, and do a couple of different things that he has already spoken of and encourages them to continue doing other things. But we're going to take a break from that normal kind of discourse of read a verse, explain it. Read a verse, explain it. We're going to take a quick break from that because what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time um, talking more in depth about that one notion in verse 12 that we're going to talk about. And then we're going to spend some time praying together. Praying in a directed way um, that I feel like even now is going to be really beneficial for us as far as like setting the tone for how the last couple of weeks of the semester can go um, and giving us a model for how to actually pray, but also how to pray for those who are spiritual authorities over us. So that's where we're heading. Let me read for us. Uh, our text, and then we will um, talk about it a little bit and pray. Pick it up in chapter 5, verse 12. This is what Paul says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Your translation may say, or care for you and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. 
See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Tonight, what I want us to do, and this is the promise I'm going to make for us, is that when we see how Paul has a deep concern for those who are ministry leaders among the Thessalonian church, I promise that if we see his concern and we read into that rightly, we will have a heightened appreciation for our ministry leaders, for our pastors, for those who are in spiritual authority over us. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight is, um, I, I became convinced of this probably about a month or so ago, and this, I knew this was coming up, um, so it was really um, providential, but I became convinced of this about a month ago, that I frankly think that most people in church do not know what your pastor does. Like legitimately, if I asked you, hey, how does your pastor spend his week? You might be able to roll off a couple of things that you could like, you know, randomly say, well, yeah, of course, like he gets ready to preach, but like, what does that look like? And what I've been convinced of is that since we don't know that, unless a preacher, unless a pastor, unless someone like me or your pastor actually teaches us what their job looks like, you're never going to learn. Because who are you going to go to find that out from? Can't go to your buddy who doesn't know. Unless a pastor or someone who has insight in that world knows and teaches us, we're just not going to get it. I think Paul is kind of cracking open that can of worms for us, and we're going to follow him. We're going to let him loose, and we're going to pray for pastors. We're going to see how we can pray for them, and we're going to explain a little bit about how pastors actually get down in our context on a weekly basis. Yeah? So my promise is that if we see Paul's concern for ministry leaders and rightly understand it, then we will have a heightened appreciation for our ministry leaders. Yeah? So before we get into it, let's pray, and then we will dive into this text. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for providentially bringing this text to us at this point in the semester, um, coming off of the heels of Easter and how I know a lot of pastors are tired um, and how a lot of ministry leaders are basically wore out and they're looking for a little bit of a break before the craziness of the summer begins. But God, also I thank you providentially for the, the, the text that we have before us that's not even necessarily concerned with pastors that is directly applicable to us today in our context. And so Father, I thank you for this being where we are at this time of the semester God, I pray that we would be able to hear rightly what it is that you would have to say to us. And God, I pray that, um, that we would have a greater appreciation for our ministry leaders at the end of the night. And as is my custom, I would ask for you to pray for me. I pray that the, the words that I say would be beneficial, they would be accurate, and that I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. So if you would, take a moment and pray for me, if you would. Father, I thank you for the time I've been able to spend talking with pastors over the last couple of days, for the time I've been able to spend studying, preparing. God, I pray that that would be beneficial, absolutely. Uh, but God, more than anything, I pray that you would give me your spirit even now as we explain these things, as we talk about them more, uh, intelligently, and as we articulate the truths that we see in the Scripture. God, I pray that you would be here speaking through me, that it wouldn't just be Lee's thoughts and Lee's words, but rather we need 
your very words. We need your living word that is active and sharp so much that it separates us from our thoughts and intentions, God. We need your spirit to speak into us tonight. So, Father, I pray that that would happen. And I pray that as a result that we would have a greater appreciation for those who lead us in ministry and that ultimately we would be able to worship you better. So, Father, I give you this time and we thank you for what you're going to do in it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, like I said, we are going to be blowing through some portions that, frankly, any other night I would slow down and we would look at in detail, but that's just not our focus for tonight. So, let's start it off by looking at verses 12 and 13 one more time. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We're going to look at this in much more detail whenever we get to the point of praying for pastors and explaining what their job is, but ultimately the point here is that Paul is drawing attention to the work of ministry leaders. And I'm doing that intentionally. I'm not just saying pastors. I'm not just saying elders. I'm not just using the word for overseers. Ministry leaders. This applies to every one of us who are in ministry leadership in some form, including student leaders. Okay? He draws the attention to the church And frankly, this seems like an odd turn because nowhere in the book of 1 Thessalonians has he mentioned the leadership of the church a single time. So why is he now throwing it in there? Well, I think it's because these are the two, or excuse me, these are the leaders who are going to be applying those two points of uh, correction from the end of chapter 4 and really teaching the content at the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5 about eschatology and, and how to live in light of Christ's return. And so I think he's kind of mentally kind of prepared us to talk to these folks, but at the same time, he's just bringing it up to say that these ministry leaders need to have your esteem, your love, and frankly, your submission. We can see that in other texts. We're not going to get into that too much. Um, But basically, the church is asked to recognize the labors of their leaders. That phrase should remind us of chapter 1, verse 3, their labor of love. Because we even see that there is love thrown in here, uh, there in verse 13, to to esteem them very highly in love. And he starts off by talking about their labor. So the point is, these men and women have a responsibility and a duty to lead well, which is what we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 13 before we got going. But at the end of the day, this is something that I feel like we just need to be taught about more clearly because unless pastors actually teach on this, We're probably never going to find this stuff out. So, um, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. I will say one last thing. At the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. I don't think he's throwing that in there as like, hey, there's not peace there, so make sure you all fix that. I think this is just yet another one of those commands that he would also rightly probably follow up with, as you have been doing, and do it all the more, that type of thing. So I don't think we should read too much into that. So we'll talk more in depth about 12 and 13 in a bit. Moving on. That's probably the the shortest amount of time I've ever spent on an opening point this entire semester. You're welcome, right? Let's look at verse 14. This is actually one of the most well-known verses in all of 1 Thessalonians, so let's read it closely. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers. Now, it's not just leaders. He's talking to everyone. However, I do think there is a unique role that the leaders are going to play in this verse, but we'll get to that in a second. He says, Brothers, we urge you, admonish the idle, or your translation may say something along the lines of disorderly, or those who are unorganized or undisciplined, that you are to admonish them. Put a foot in their butt if they need it, okay? 
You are to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I, uh, when I read this, I can't help but see that there's just this massive pastoral tone from Paul here, where he knows the issues that are going on in the church, those guys who have been taking advantage of people's love back at the uh, end of chapter 4 that Alex preached several weeks ago, and that those guys have not been working with their hands, and they've just been living off of the love and generosity of others. He's saying they're idle, they need to get fixed. I think he's kind of coming back to that notion. But then he also recognizes clearly that that's not the situation that everyone's in. He says there are some that need to be encouraged because they're faint-hearted, because they are just tired. They're wore down. Some of them are weak, and they need to be helped. The most important element in this section is that Paul distinguishes in the way that we are to respond to those folks who need help and assistance in some way, and we have to distinguish that by responding differently, right? So this is what I would say. Not every problem is a nail, and not every solution is a hammer. Okay? I have a buddy of mine who was a Black Hawk mechanic, and whenever he was going through mechanic school for the Army, um, their tests were extremely complex. If you didn't use the absolutely right tool for the right job, it was almost an automatic disqualification right there. So if you had a guy who has a wrench or a ratchet or whatever trying to loosen a bolt and it won't quite go, there's an old trick you can use of just putting another wrench together and you can just use that to get extra leverage. Well, if an instructor saw you doing that, immediate failure. And the reason for that is there is a whole tool called a cheater bar. It's just a pipe that you slide over it to get more leverage. That is the tool that you use for that purpose. Don't go grab another wrench. Don't grab a hammer and just hit it harder. Not every problem is a nail and not every solution is a hammer. I do not talk to my five-year-old the way I talk to my four-year-old when I'm offering correction. All right? Letty wants to bow up at you and get angry. Sophie if she thinks she's going to get in trouble, she just turns into a puddle and just like falls to the ground. So I have to treat her differently, not because she just is more delicate and I should pamper her, but rather she has to be instructed in a way that she can actually hear. So if someone is idle and lazy, well, I'm not going to come alongside them and be like, hey man, you know what, you're doing real good. Let's just pick it up a little bit. No, they're probably going to get a foot right in the butt. However, if there is someone who has been struggling with some emotional tension, if they are grieving in some real heartfelt way, me walking up and saying, you know what, hey, you just need to get over it. That's not what's going to be most beneficial, and frankly, it's not honoring to God. Where's love in that? So what Paul says is, you need to recognize what's going on in people's lives, understand how Everything is presenting as a problem in their life, and then address it accordingly, not just with the hammer that you got. You know, uh, I'm a huge baseball fan, and so one of the things that people talk about whenever you're assessing baseball players is, are they a five-tool guy? What are the five tools, Caleb? Oh my goodness, you don't know what the five tools are? Running, hitting, throwing, okay, whatever. Point is, point is, we can't be one-tool Christians. Hey, man, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what I did. Be like me. Man, if that's you and you're a believer in Jesus, I would just ask you to maybe just say nothing. Maybe just point someone along the way to someone who can actually encourage them in the right way instead of just you being the hammer in their life. And let me be really clear. 
I'm saying that as the guy who used to be the hammer, right? If you've ever hung out with me and Josh Malden, for some of y'all know this story, um, me and Josh Malden, my college pastor when I was in Fayetteville, when I worked with him, whenever there was some confrontation that needed to happen with some of our students or our leaders, well, Lee Wood was the one that would go in there and bust them up, swing the hammer, because that's what I got. And then Josh would have to come up behind me and like, hey, what did Lee say to you? Yeah, I know, he's a jerk. I mean, he was kind of right, but like, but he shouldn't have said it that way. And then Josh would like pick up the pieces. I'm not saying this as somebody that's like high and mighty. I'm saying this as somebody who screwed this up. Okay? You can't be a one-tool Christian. That is not how this is supposed to work. Especially because we are talking about people who are in the family of God. We're talking about brothers and sisters. You don't just walk around swinging a hammer, smacking folks with it because, well, that's what I got. Well, then just put it away. How about we do that? There's one other element that I want to lay out here that I think is really important. Um, it's that last point. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I'll tell you another place that I failed. A lot of times whenever I would be counseling students, even to this day I can fall into this trap if I'm not careful, um, I will give them the solution of what wellness looks like. I will give people, this is exactly um, what the end state is that you need to achieve. And then I'll be like, got it? Cool. Go do it. And then literally do nothing else to help. Like, there's no patience in that because what I'm failing to do is actually give people achievable steps about how to actually bring about that final state of wellness or solution or whatever it might be. And part of the reason for that is because I'm impatient. Well, I've given you the answer, dog. Just go do it. If that doesn't just reek of impatience, I don't know what does. I, I think I've told people this before, but like, um, I did not realize how short of a fuse I had until I had kids. Like, anger, never a problem. Being impatient, never a problem, really, whenever I was dealing with people. And then I had a two-year-old that I would say, hey, do the thing, and she'd be like, cool. No, 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 you don't understand. Like, I tell you what to do, and you kind of do it. Like, that's the way this works. And it's really not. I don't know if y'all knew that. I did not realize how impatient I was until I saw my need to be more patient. And so that's where the old preacher's adage of that uh, when you pray for patience, God doesn't give you patience, he gives you opportunities to be patient, right? I think that's the thing that most of us lack. And because we lack patience, we default to, well, let's get the hammer. That'll fix the problem, when really it doesn't. Are we tracking with that? So I know I'm really talking to Christians in the room, I think there's wisdom here for those who are not believers in Jesus to see that, yeah, that's, that seems like it can be problematic in real life in any other context, even if you're not a believer. Yeah? All right. Moving on, I'm telling you, we're going to try to fly through this as much as possible. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. We're going to take it all in one shot. Verse 15 says this. See that no one repays evil or repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another to one another, and to everyone. Let's just make a distinction right there. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Seek to do good to one another and everyone. I think he's drawing that distinction between, especially those who are believers in Jesus, you definitely don't repay evil for evil, and you do good. But then he also says, and everyone else. Like, there's no category in which you as a Christian are entitled to being a jerk. Are you tracking with me? There's no situation where you get to respond not being gracious. You can respond with wisdom, but that doesn't mean you get to be a jerk, right? Are you tracking with that? 
Paul says you respond with grace to one another and to everyone. And that's all pictured as with patience from the previous verse, right? Let's pick it up there in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. This is where Paul's really going to start rattling off a whole series of these commands. Um, like I said earlier, each one of these merits their own discussion, but we've got bigger fish to fry for tonight. So let me summarize what I think is going on in 15 through 18. What Paul is doing is he is commanding the church to pursue living holy lives together. Right? How much has Paul been focusing on you Thessalonians, believers, believers, brothers, sisters, do these things? And we've actually already seen Paul talk about several of these things before, um, but they were just uh, spoken of in a little bit different light. And I'll, I'll draw attention to that here in just a minute. Um, but this is where we see those elements of what he said earlier in verse 13 about being at peace with everyone and then being patient. I think this is where all that's being fleshed out. He's given us more evidence, uh, or excuse me, more examples of how living at peace with each other and being patient works out. Don't repay evil. Do good. Rejoice always. Pray together. Thank God in every circumstance. Let me pause right there. Notice that Paul does not say, prepositions matter, he does not say, thank God for every circumstance. You, you notice the difference there? The difference between thanking God for every circumstance and thanking God in every circumstance? And this is where I think it would be just really critical for us to understand that there are going to be times in our lives where things are not going to go your way. And frankly, it very well may be because of your own sin. So should you thank God for that? I don't necessarily think so, but I think you can see God's goodness in and through those things. Especially when it comes to suffering as a result of our own sinfulness, our own pride, our own downfall, you know, being hoisted by our own petard, whatever it might be. Like, I think we are meant to recognize that God can use those circumstances and that that is a blessing to us in the end. But I don't think that we should celebrate the circumstances for themselves. Am I making that distinction clear? So he says, thank God and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, for you. And I think really what's going on there is that that is relating back not only to patience and living at peace, that's also relating all the way back to what we saw back in chapter 4, verse 3. So let's read that real quick. Go to chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then a little bit later in the next section through verse 12, this is where I've referenced multiple times that Alex was preaching on. There were two main issues that Paul said, hey, church, y'all need to fix this. And so what we're to condense all that down is basically Paul was saying there are certain things you need to do to make sure you are living a holy life. Verse 3 of chapter 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he goes on to explain that you would abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control your own body. And then later on, verse 9 and 10, that everyone would, uh, concerning brotherly love, that we would... Um, Work with our hands, right? That's what we see there in verse 11. To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 
Whenever we see that Paul is commanding the church to pursue holy living, he's already talked about sanctification before in chapter 4, verse 3, and he uses the same language here. He says generally, 15 through 18, that you are supposed to um, rejoice always, that we're going to not repay evil, but do good, pray without ceasing, give thanks. All of that is about sanctification, growing in holiness. Are you tracking with that? Right? So this is where Paul's kind of starting to put a bow on a lot of the things that we've already talked about. Um, but this is something that's just really critical. So here's what I would say for us. Let's just kind of take a pause, and this is where I'm going to ask you a question. Are you making tangible strides in your life to make this come about? Are you actually making a real effort to do the things that Paul says, such as don't repay evil for evil, but do good to anyone? rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And by the way, I don't think that means like literally all you do is pray. I think he means that every time that your mind thinks of something that you need to pray for, that you do it right then. Are we doing that? Because if you're not making actual strides or even even really effort in this arena, how can we say that we are obeying the commands that Paul gives to the church to live holy lives together? Because if you're You're not doing this individually. I promise you, you're not doing it corporately. You might try to play the game and hide a little bit, but man, that's going to fall apart real quick at some point. So, are we actually making strides in this area of trying to improve our sanctification, working with the Holy Spirit to obey the commands of Christ for our benefit, yes, but for God's glory and, frankly, for the sanctification of the body, that we would all be edified? Are you actually doing that? If you're a believer in Jesus... This is what your Christian life is until you die. You read the scriptures, you understand them rightly, you understand that there are some demands on your life, and then you go do them. And you get better at doing them. And then you read some more. And you find out there's more that you need to do. And you go do that. And then you read some more. And you're confronted with how you're not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. So you go do that. This is not just some far-off, lofty goal. This is actually day in and day out what we as believers are expected to be doing. Are we tracking with that? If you need help having a conversation with somebody, um, just confessing sin, man, come talk with me. If you are running from this notion of growing in sanctification because you would rather hide your sin and hope no one finds out, then you're never going to be free of that sin. Come talk with me. I want to help us work through that. I promise you it's not going to be the hammer. You'll get what is appropriate, yeah? So, let's move on before we run out of time. Let's look at verses 19 through 22. Well, actually, yeah, let's pick it up at 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So, there's a whole lot going on here, but again, we're not going to be working through every little bit of this. Um, however, after Paul talking about growing in holiness and sanctification, the arena of the Holy Spirit, which he mentions explicitly there in verse uh, 19, um, Paul now brings out a more obvious kind of spiritual element, talking about prophecies. Now, we can have the conversation about whether we're talking about foretelling, something that's going to happen in the future, or forthtelling truth and like applying it to someone's life. Um, I would lean towards the latter. And if that's what's going on with that form of prophecy of people speaking wisdom over your life and then you going and living that out, I think that's what he means by don't despise prophecy. Surely there's other elements to it, but I think that's mainly what he means. Um, Paul says, hey, y'all need to be growing in your faith. 
but he mentions explicitly that we would do this through the Holy Spirit and that we would not quench the Spirit. Paul is opening up this arena of much more spiritual realities than, frankly, he's been leaving kind of under the surface, simmering through the whole letter, but now it's brought to the fore. However, he doesn't just open the floodgates and say, hey, just if you can just tag the Holy Spirit on it, then yeah, man, do whatever you want. Just say the Holy Spirit's doing it. He doesn't say that at all. Here's how I would summarize it. That whenever we are confronted with spiritual realities in life, those are always meant to be kept in balance. Right? I don't see Satan hiding under every rock and behind every bush. Every flat tire I've ever gotten is not because Satan was trying to stop me. But he may have been. What I'm saying is that we have to be balanced in understanding that there is, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that man, our warfare is not waged against flesh and bone. We don't have enemies who are people. Our warfare is spiritual in nature. However, we test every bit of it. I mean, this is literally what John says in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3. He really talks about that we are to test the spirits. I think it's in chapter 4, um, specifically. Like, this is a clear indication that we are supposed to have a regard for the spiritual realities in life around us, but it's not supposed to run roughshod over our life, right? Not every single thing is a demonic influence. It could just be a natural result of your sin or someone else's, or it could just be that is life. However, don't make the mistake of just thinking that, man, all that there is to life is what you see. It has to be in balance, right? So, spiritual realities are meant to be kept in balance, but here's the one thing that I do want to draw our attention to, and this is where I do want to spend a little bit of time. Did y'all notice anything particular or peculiar about the end of verse 18 and beginning of verse 19? Let me read it for us one more time. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, do not quench the Spirit. What stands out to you in that, those two verses, back to back? Jacob is nodding along. Anything stand out to you, dog? What characters do we see? Who do we see in those two verses? The Trinity. Here, at this point, whenever Paul cracks the seal on this spiritual realities around us, he doesn't just stumble into the Trinitarian formulation of how we understand the Godhead to work. This is intentional. Okay? I think the reason Paul is doing that is because I think he's really coming back to this point of noticing that there is this clear Trinitarian theme because that points to the activity of the Father, of the Son, and the Spirit. And here, not quenching the Spirit is really in these spiritual realities. However, living in Christ together as a church is really critical for us. And all of this is governed by the Father. Here's, here's how I would say this. Right? We have to see the way that the Trinity works just from the vantage point of salvation. Let's just talk about um, salvific action. How does this happen? One, the Father ordains that there is salvation available, and he sends his Son to make it come about. The Son, Jesus, comes, lives, dies, buried, and is raised again to accomplish salvation. The Father ordains and sends. The Son lives, dies, and accomplishes. And then the Holy Spirit applies it to us. I think all three elements of that um, viewpoint of salvation is really why Paul is mentioning those 
three persons of the Godhead right here in two verses. So you can't tell me that Paul is not Trinitarian or that the Trinity is some later formulation. 1 Thessalonians is one of the first and earliest books that we have. And if not it, then Galatians is the earliest. And he mentions the Trinity there too. So from Paul's earliest writings, he was Trinitarian. So for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we are Trinitarian. If we are to have a right view of who God is, and if we are to have a right view of how salvation is actually accomplished, it is all couched in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You separate any portion of their work from your formulation of what you think salvation is and how that comes about, and I promise you, you do not have salvation. You have something else. You may have good works. You may have a good feeling. You may have um, a lack of needing to be saved from anything because you didn't actually sin. But you won't have salvation because this is the only way in which salvation comes about. Am I tracking with y'all? You get north-south. If you have any questions about how salvation actually works, man, drop something in the chat. Faith would love to chat with you. I'd love to talk with you after the fact. Here tonight, if you want to talk more about this, I'm not going to assume that anybody here, live or online, actually understands the ins and outs of how salvation works. And so I want to make sure that that's actually made available to us. Yeah? So, that is our entire section of 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. So what I want to do now is I want to circle back around to chapter 5, verse 12, um, and we're going to look at this in just a little bit more detail. Um, and again, what I want to do is I want to bring us to a point where we are actually um, going to learn something that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. Okay, Like I said, I've already uh, put forward that I think that if pastors don't teach us what pastors actually do, then we're just probably never going to find that out. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what are some pastoral responsibilities. Now, this is where it gets really difficult because every single pastor is a pastor of a church that is unique. Every person who is a ministry leader is a ministry uh, leader in a unique setting. And so it's really difficult to give us like useful categories that are broad enough to encompass everything else. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, we're going we're to lay these out, and then we're going to do a little bit of an exercise here in a moment. But let's get our three categories first. Here's the first one that I think is most important, teaching, or you might say teaching and preaching. Whenever you look at the qualifications for an elder, an overseer, right, a presbyteros, um, or episkopos, uh, or poiamen for the word for pastor, those three words in the New Testament describe the same person that we would call a pastor um, or an elder. Their one qualification that makes them distinctly different than, than deacons is their ability to teach. They must be able to teach. So every pastor must be able to teach and preach at some level. Are you tracking with me there? And so when I say teaching and preaching, I don't just mean teaching and preaching like the thing I'm doing up here for the amount of time that we've got cameras on and a microphone on my head. I'm also including like all the time that goes into study and prep for those things. Are you tracking with me? Every single pastor does this at some level. That's the first category. So teaching. Second category I would put up there is shepherding. So this is where we have a lot of our one-on-one -on -one meetings. This is when people are um, experiencing loss, right? If there's been a funeral recently, I would kind of put this in that category. If there's been a wedding, I'd put it in this category. If there's been counseling for premarital counseling or just ongoing weekly um, shepherding of people, it's right here. This is, in fact, this is the one 
image that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's talking to elders, presbyteros, y'all are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Number one, that's God's flock. Those are God's people. But these men who are pastors, who are elders, these ministry leaders who have some role to be uh, shepherding in some capacity, they are just under-shepherds, as it were. They're the ones who help um, guide people through the sticky parts of life. Are you tracking with me? Every ministry leader at some level does this. Every pastor does this at some level. So we've got teaching, shepherding, and then lastly, I would put in there leading or planning. And this is where I would say, if you're at a more traditional church that is you know, one pastor, and maybe there's like an associate pastor, or maybe somebody who does music, um, but there's a whole lot of committees, well, who do you think ultimately leads those committees? They may have a committee chair or a committee head, or like the deacon body may have people that kind of sit over those things. But where does the buck actually stop at that church? That's the pastor. And so all the leading and planning, the vision casting, uh, the forecasting of where ministries are going to be going in like long stretches of five, ten years at a time, much less what two weeks from now is going to look like, this all falls on the shoulders of those who are your pastors. Now, if this is kind of a little obscure for us, let me kind of explain it in a different way. Whenever we are talking about teaching, shepherding, and leading or planning, we're really talking about investment. At the end of the day, how are pastors investing? Well, number one, they're investing in the Word. In their own personal study, their preparation, they are investing in the ability to be able to deliver the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and they are going to defend it, be able to articulate it, to be able to talk about it, teach it, preach it, all of those things. So they are investing in the Word. Shepherding is investing in people. A lot of their time is investing in people. And then, whenever we talk about planning and uh, leading, that's investing in the future. Are you tracking with me with how that works out? So, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you all some questions, and I want you all to give me answers. Okay? I actually thought about having everybody write these things down, and everyone would turn them in, but that would just end up being way too long. But here's what I want to do. I have up here a little notepad, and I've got, I've just got seven categories of basic things that most people assume their pastors do. So let me read these for you. These are a far cry from everything that a pastor does on a weekly basis, but I want us to line out what are some things that they do, and then what we're going to do is start assigning how many hours a week you think actually go into each one of these. So here are the categories. Number one, sermon prep or teaching preparation. So the time that the dude's actually speaking with the face mic and the cameras and the lights and everything, but also how much time did that dude spend getting ready for that sermon? How much time did he spend getting ready for that time he was teaching that series? And I'll explain some of this stuff with me a little bit later on and kind of give you all an idea of how it works out for me here, but I'm not everybody, so we'll talk about that. So sermon prep. Number two, individual meetings. One-on-one type stuff, that's shepherding. Maybe that's meeting one-on-one, or maybe it's with a couple doing premarital counseling, if it's just doing counseling, if it's someone who's struggling with an individual sin. Um, Maybe it's somebody who's just wanting to spend time with their pastor, right? Um, By the way, I've spent probably about three hours on the phone yesterday and this morning talking to random pastors saying, hey, how much time do you spend in these areas? And what every one of them has told me, to summarize it, that shepherding, that individual demand on a pastor's time for one-on-one meetings is the number one demand that they have on their time. That's not actually how they spend all their time or the most amount of time in their week, 
But that's the one thing that demands, or people make demands of them more than anything else. Tracking with that? So, sermon prep, individual meetings, group meetings. So if you have a group of people that you're discipling as a pastor, and you've got two or three guys, or you've got this uh, group of people who are teaching through some material or a committee, you've got to lead those groups, right? And if you are at a congregationally-led church that has a lot of committees, and that your pastor is the one who's in charge of all those things, dog, how many times has he got to meet with every one of those cats every quarter? Those things can start piling up. So sermon prep, individual meetings, group meetings. Third thing, services, like what we're doing now, separate from the actual preparation of preaching, sermons or events. I just submitted our plan for uh, what Welcome Week is going to look like. Um, Izzy might have to back me up here, but I think if I remember off the top of my head, we've got 17 events over 10 days planned. Do I have to be at every single one of those? Well, probably not, but I probably will be. Right now, I granted, that's the first two weeks of the semester, that looks really different, but... What around Easter? What around Christmas? What about the summer whenever you have a youth pastor who's doing children's ministry or youth ministry and they're going to camp? That's like a 24-7 thing for like a whole week. So the sermons, the, the, the actual services they have and the events they attend. Let's look at another category. Administration, planning, leading. I've got to do financial reporting. People have to actually organize Bible studies. They have to do the work of calling people, making sure folks are set up to do the thing they have to do. Okay. How many hours a week do you think they, it goes into that? Here's one, evangelism. How many hours a week do you anticipate your pastor should be doing individual evangelism? And then lastly, if you're in a much more traditional church, how about hospital visits? How about going to nursing homes? How about caring for the body and physical needs? Um, whenever I was in Louisville uh, and I worked with our church there, man, I would go to nursing homes all the time. would go with a pastor, Go with either Dr. Eliff or, or Peter Brown, um, or excuse me, Philip Brown, or one of the other pastors. Man, I was there all the time. You know, once every other week, and it'd be a whole afternoon, and that was just the time I was with him. And Philip did that three other times that week. So, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you here in a moment, I want you to give me how many hours a week you think a pastor should be spending in each of these things each week. And don't be playing this game where you're trying to do the mental math of like, okay, well, let's just say he's going to work like 45 hours a week and then try to work backwards. Don't do that. Just give me your first impulse. Just yell it out to me. So you tell me, how many hours a week do you think a pastor needs to spend for prepping for one sermon? How many hours do you think? And by the way, let me preview this. If you are in a speech class right now and your speech is five or ten minutes, how long did you spend on those 10 minutes? I routinely preach up here for 50. So let that guide you. How many hours a week do you think a pastor should prepare for one sermon? 18 hours? Okay. 14? 6 to 10. My man over here is brave, right? All right, so 6 to 10. So we've got 6 to 10, 14 to 18. What are some other options? Okay. What their topic is. Give me an example of what you mean that it could depend on what their topic is. If it's like a harder topic, like Yep. Yeah. And that doesn't always work out that way. If it's a harder topic like eschatology, yeah, you might want to pour in a little bit more time to actually 
make sure you have the precision you need to be adequately covering something, but yet not taking all night to do it. However, John 3.16, man, that shouldn't take no time at all, right? Or does it? So, we've got 6 to 10, 14 to 18. Give me a number. Somebody, Maddie, what number should we write down here? 25 to 30. All right. Let's, be, let's, let's, be, let's just call it 18. Since we had the really high end, we had the low end with 6 to 10. Let's call it 18. Cool. That's Sunday morning. What if your pastor does Sunday morning and Sunday night? If we take that number at face value, 36 hours for two hours of work, which we're going to see in the service, his entire week is already shot. Now, I'm going to tell you, most pastors don't spend 18 hours. I will tell you what I normally do. I normally spend at the beginning of a semester, which is really the end of the previous one, I plan the next year out, essentially. I have done the majority of my study for 1 Thessalonians back in December. But on a weekly basis, between typically Thursday, Friday, at different times, but really Monday is when I nail everything down, I spend about 10 to 12 hours on Connect. And that's one service. What if your pastor does Sunday morning, Sunday night? What about Wednesday night? So if we're going to do that, well, let's, let's lower it down. So maybe it's 18 for Sunday morning and 10 for Sunday night and 5 for, you know, Wednesday. Still a lot. All right, let's look at our other category, individual meetings. Most meetings are going to last somewhere between 30, 40 minutes on the low end, but really we're talking about an hour, hour and some change. So let's just say an hour. How many meetings a week do you think your pastor is actually going through with individuals? Two a day? So let's be generous and say maybe he wouldn't do two every single day for every weekday, but let's just call it eight. So like two for across, you know, two a day for four of those days. Okay, so we got eight. Somebody else want to give another option? Twenty. Now, I would, I would say uh, 20 might be a little high, generally. But what if we're talking about right at the very end of a semester when students are starting to tank all their classes and their life is falling apart and they don't know what they're going to do this summer? Yeah, I could do 20 meetings in a week. Easy. So we got 8 and we got 20. Somebody, Caleb, split the difference for me. What's something between 8 and 20 that you would say is a generally good number that we would say probably makes sense? 14. 14. So it is. 14. All right. What about group meetings? Think about group discipleship. Think about your, if you're at a traditional church, think about your, um, your board of deacons. Uh, think about what other committee meetings you've got. How many meetings that are group-based do you think your pastor does a week? And let's just say they're an hour. Yeah, I think I put that under the individual stuff earlier, so we'll say no. Because it's going to be one flesh. Four. Four. Okay. Josh, what do you say? Six to ten. And by the way, when are most of those meetings going to happen? At night? On what day? Probably on Sunday. So this pastor, who has been preparing throughout the week to preach once in the morning maybe do some meetings in the afternoon, preach again that night, and then probably do some other meetings right before, that dude's day is already at least nine hours long on Sunday. 
possibly. So, how many did you say? Six to ten. All right. Rye, give me the number. What's the number we're writing down? We've had eight, we've had 20, we've had six to ten. What say you? Nine. That's a good number. All right. Events and services. So if you've got Sunday morning, you've got Sunday night, and you've got Wednesday night, let's just say one of those is going to go away, either Wednesday or Sunday. So at least two hours every week. At least two hours, and that's being extremely brief. But that's not including any other events. How many do you think would be a good number there for a week? Six. Caitlin? Ah. There are days whenever I go and hang out with your pastor on Tuesday mornings, and then an hour and a half later I go hang out with him and other pastors for pastor lunch. I would put that in this kind of category. So how many in a week do you think we're talking about here? Fifteen? So we had six, what did you say, six? Six, fifteen? Sarah, split the difference. Give me a number we're going to write down here. Or you don't have to split the difference. What do you think? Eight. Eight? Okay. All right. Administrative things, planning, leading, those types of things. i got to do my financial reports. Yeah, a lot of that's going to be stacked at the end of the month, beginning of the month, one of the two. Um, or if you've got individual things that happen throughout the month, it might be concentrated, but how many hours a week generally do you think your pastor spends doing those things? Yeah, well, guess what? I don't have a staff here. You know who does all of our financial junk? Your boy, okay? And I hate it. I really don't like it, okay? If you've got a staff, yeah. But who leads that staff? Who directs that staff? Ultimately, the pastor. Well, if you've got a lot of committees, yeah, but he's already meeting with them, okay? So just personally, for whatever his responsibility is, how many hours do you think he spends on a weekly basis doing administrative things, planning, and doing those types of things, Red? Five? Okay. 30? Okay. Um, for some churches, the planning, if you are a single pastor church, it might be pretty high. It really might. I don't know if I would go with 30, but cool, we're getting a range. Griffin, what do you say? What's the number we're writing down? Seventeen. Evangelism. How many hours worth of evangelism do you think your pastor should be doing a week? Not as much as they would like. I promise you that's the facts. Reagan, how many hours a week do you think your pastor needs to be doing personal evangelism in some form? Twenty. Okay. Red, come back to you. Fifteen? Crystal, give us a number. What's the number we're going to write down for evangelism for the pastor? How many hours a week is he going to spend doing those things? Twelve. All right, our last category. Hospital visits, her nursing home visits. Your boy was an idiot, fell down some stairs, cracked his head open, whatever, okay? How many hours a week, Rye, do you think a pastor typically spends doing hospital calls, those types of things? Eight. Somebody else want to give us another number? Jacob? Yeah, if it's a big church, 
like our church in Louisville, we had like six, seven pastors, and they all did visits, and they would always take guys, but every pastor, including the lead pastor, did so. Right? So you're right, it can be a little bit different, but we're just trying to get general here. Five to six. Reagan agrees with that. Winston, how many hours a week do you anticipate your pastor should be spending doing hospital, nursing home visit type stuff? Thirteen. Thirteen. All right. So this is not true in total because we all would have different answers and I kind of picked on individual people. However, I gave everyone an opportunity to split the difference on every one of these hours. Let me do the math real quick because I'm an idiot. I'm going to break out my phone. So hey, y'all are just going to have to, you're just going to have to Trust me that what I'm doing is correct. 18, 14, 9, 8, 17, 12, and 13. 91 hours in this room, you just laid on your pastor for seven tasks. You know one that I didn't even mention in here? You didn't mention a moment for his family or even for him to pray. If you... And I expect that of our pastors. That dude is going to be dead and in the dirt in a year, if not sooner. That is absolutely unrealistic. Now, my point is to say all of those numbers are wrong. Every one of them. But I can guarantee you there are weeks, the, basically about two or three weeks before classes begin here until what, Labor Day? Labor Day is the day, the holiday in the beginning of the fall, Right? Until that break, I work every single day. Typically, eight, maybe ten hours a day. Now, that's not going to be sustainable for the whole semester, or your boy would die. But there are seasons when that actually is correct. 91 hours. You realize full-time is like 36 hours or 35 hours, whatever the current standard is, right? 40 hours a week is the standard way we think about it. We've got this dude working twice as many hours as a normal person would. And this doesn't actually scratch the surface of what your pastor does. We haven't even talked about the emotional toll that comes from a pastor sitting at someone's deathbed and counseling a family who is grieving to then an hour later having to write the baby dedication thing that they're going to read that later that Sunday. That he's counseling someone who's going through divorce and then celebrating with someone because he shared the gospel with them and now they're a believer in Jesus and they're talking about baptism. We haven't even talked about the emotional toll that that takes. So, here's what I want us to do. I hope that you're starting to see that even just this little list of seven things does not really even scratch the surface of what a normal week can look like. And and I get it, this is not a true-to-life example, but are you tracking with this? So when Paul says in verse 12... We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Man, pastors are not the ones that are having to be admonished because they're idle. Not the ones I've met. And if they are being lazy and idle, they're not going to be pastors for long. I promise you that much. If they would respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, that they care for you, like they care for your souls, they will give an account And we don't really even understand what their normal week looks like. So, here's what I want us to do. In light of all these things, we're we're probably only going to get like one song at the end of this, so get a good one, okay? Because we're going to run out of time. Um, Here's what I want us to do. 
This is where we're going to break up into a couple of little groups here. You know, just lean over with someone and pray one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to do two rounds of this. We're going to break it up into ways that we can pray for pastors in their ministry, their role as a pastor, and then ways that you can pray for them as a person who happens to do ministry. And there's kind of unique facets for each of these. So let me explain these. Um, so we'll give these. They'll be on the, or on the screens. You'll, you'll have these prompts. So here's what I'll say. Um, here's how we can pray for pastors. When I've surveyed these guys that I've talked with over the last couple of days for multiple hours, every single pastor to a man said the number one thing that we need to pray for for them is wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, pray that God would give it to them and pray in such a way that you believe and don't be double-minded that God will give you generously with one mind all the wisdom you need. Our pastors need to have wisdom. And here's that facet of wisdom that I want you to think about. Not just in knowing what the right answer to a problem is, but anticipating what the problem's going to be before it ever arises. That is the task of a real pastor. Are you tracking with me? There is no way for that man, for that woman who is leading in ministry in some form, there is no way for that person to be able to do that outside of the wisdom of God, and they need it desperately. Pray for wisdom. Second thing is discernment. One of the hardest things that pastors deal with, especially of larger churches, is people asking for help in their, you know, philanthropic and you know, venture, whatever it may be, that there are ministry opportunities to do all sorts of good things, and you're going to have to tell more than 90% of those people no. That's heartbreaking. You have limited resources. You have a limited amount of time. You have to have discernment in how to best leverage what God has given you to make his name known among the nations. Are you tracking with me? They need discernment. The third thing is diligence. And I'm not saying in the sense of like they're lazy, but diligence to stay focused on the things they're supposed to be focused on. Because it is so easy to get distracted from all the other things, especially when they're expected to work 91 hours. Are you tracking with me? And then the last thing that I want you to pray for them is favor. That they would experience favor among the people that they are sharing the gospel with. That they would experience favor with the people that they have a sphere of influence over. And that they would have favor with the people they're leading, frankly. They desperately need that because what Paul says is that we are to esteem them highly in love. Well, they need favor over those people in order for that to happen. Are you tracking with me? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take about two or three minutes. I want you to lean over with somebody, and I want you all to pray for either your pastor or just pastors in general. And then at the end of two or three minutes, I'm going to come up, I'll pray for us, and then we'll move on to our next topic, and then we'll be done. Okay? We'll move on to one song. Yep. And then we'll get ready to go. All right. So, lean over, take about two to three minutes, start praying. Go. Father, I pray right now uh, for pastors in our area. God, even with men like uh, Jeff Thompson, who um, serves in that role and he is shepherding other pastors. God, I pray for them. Uh, I pray for him specifically. I pray for wisdom in uh, leading other men uh, who are in ministry. God, I pray for men like Brad Luter, and I pray for Lee Kent and Kent Sweatman and these men who have uh, immense responsibilities. God, I pray that you would give them the wisdom that is absolutely necessary for them to actually live out the calling on their life and that they would not fail to do what it is that you've asked them to do because they actually know what you've said to do because you, they have discerned what it is you've told them to do through your spirit. So God, I pray that you would give them an extra portion of your spirit to help aid them in this with wisdom and discernment. God, I pray for favor 
for pastors. And I think of Mike Jones doing youth ministry at Eastside. God, I pray for him that he would have the ability to speak into the lives of youth there at Eastside. God, that they are so strategically situated that um, he needs to be able to have favor with administrators and teachers and other people who run programs. God, I pray you would give him favor in his role um, wearing multiple hats at that church. God, I thank you for men like him, and I thank you for other men who do youth ministry in this area and do children's ministry. God, I pray that you would give them the diligence to stay focused on the tasks that they have before them. God, I thank you for men like Matt Passmore and others who do such a great job in areas like that. And God, I pray that you would encourage them. God, that they would have folks in their church who would... Uh, who would respect the labor that they have and know that they love them and that they are admonishing the flock that is among them. And God, I pray that you would give them everything they need in order to be obedient to your calling. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so all those things are kind of like the elements of ministry, the things that they need for ministry. But as we laid out here, it's like not a single moment was actually devoted to personal study, prayer, Right, that's a huge element. So let's talk about those things you can pray for your pastor, for your ministry leader, who happens to be a person who does ministry. But for them as individual Christians, how about this? Pray for their private walk. I am not shocked, not really saddened, because I was kind of prepared for this, but you would be you might be discouraged to hear how many times I heard over the last two days how many pastors told me, you know what, Lee, it's been four weeks since I actually cracked open the Bible to read for myself and not just to prepare for something. I fell into that trap whenever I was at seminary where I was doing Jesus stuff all week long and it was just, you know, I was reading my Bible tons, more than I probably had at any other time in my life, but like it was always for an assignment or something else. Pastors can fall into that so quickly, so pray for their spiritual, personal disciplines, their walk with the Lord. Also, along with that, pray for their sanctification. You do realize people who are in ministry, men and women, pastors, they struggle with sin. You know that, right? Your pastor will fail you because he is a sinner. He is absolutely in need of God's grace. So he needs to be sanctified. There are areas in his life that need to be, you know, have sin rooted out from the very beginning. We need to pray for our pastors that they would be growing in sanctification and not just have a great quiet time, but they need to be growing in sanctification. Here's the third thing. Why don't you pray for their family? Pray for their wives, man. I couldn't tell you how many stories I've heard of pastors' wives are the reasons why men get out of ministry because their wives can't take it anymore. Not because of the demands on his time, but because there are demands on her as being the pastor's wife and she didn't feel prepared for it and was just burning out. And that affects his ministry. And I'm not throwing blame on wives because men do that to their wives a lot of times in ministry. They place those expectations on them. What about their kids, man? Pray for your pastor's families. And then lastly, pray for their health. Like, Do you know how many pastors I know that struggle with serious health issues? Why do you think that is? Because they're a bunch of lazy you know, jerks who just don't take care of themselves. Or, as Paul mentioned, maybe we should see spiritual realities around us and hold them in the right balance and say, yeah, that makes sense that Satan would go after those who are leading in ministry. Pray for their health. Couldn't tell you how many times I've had conversations with pastors where their chief 
worry is the cancer coming back. When's the last time we prayed for that guy? So, in your groups, if you're in a group, put your mask on, make sure we're being safe there. Take about two or three minutes, walk through those things on the right-hand side, and pray for the pastors individually that these things will be real in their lives. Yes, so that it affects ministry in a positive way, but so that they might be edified. Pray for them, if you would. Father, as we are thinking about how to pray for pastors in our area, God, I think a couple of men that spring to mind for me are Aaron Chastain and the way that he leads at Cornerstone, but Father, the, the demands that are placed on his life as someone who is bivocational, um, who is also leading in ministry in other areas, but um, is um, deeply concerned with leading his wife and his son well, God, I pray for Aaron that he would find the time and the, find the, the wisdom to be able to pour into his family well, and that he would, um, you know, his health would be maintained throughout this so that he may be able to have years of productive ministry. God, I pray for him. I pray for men like Steve Young at Haven Heights, and I pray for um, his personal walk with you. God, I know that he is a disciplined man, but I know also that might be something that um, might catch him by surprise, uh, just being caught up in the hustle and bustle of ministry. I pray for men like Howard Huddle who are um, walking through difficult things with his wife's health, um, coming out on the other side of things with, she's been dealing with over the last two years, but also, God, I pray that you would protect him and his health. God, as he leads a church um, that is doing great things here in the city, God, I pray that you would just um, encourage him through your spirit, through other men and women in this church. God, I pray for countless other pastors who come to mind as they're just flooding through my brain right now. And God, and I pray that they would have a, a discipline to seek after you, to spend time in prayer um, just for themselves and, and their relationship with you, God. I pray that for myself, um, how easy it is to lead others to places that we've been but presently are not. God, I pray that that wouldn't be the case for any of us. God, I pray for diligence to actually do the spiritual disciplines that we so heartily endorse for others. God, I pray that we would find the time to do that for ourselves. God, I pray that they uh, would, those disciplines would result in our own sanctification and fighting sin at a, at a very nascent form, yes, but also in those overt ways that men and women are attacked by. So God, I pray for those folks who need to have your spirit empower them to fight against sin well. God, I pray that that would happen, not so that there wouldn't be reproach brought upon them or their ministry, but rather just for their own personal edification and that they might be growing in holiness. Father, the task before us is, is far more difficult than I think and even, uh, even I grasp right now. But Father, I pray that you will have shown us tonight how big of a deal it is to have these ministry leaders and these pastors over us and the struggles that they go through and the, the task that lays before them every single week. But also, Father, frankly, the joy that is set before them. God, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that they would be encouraged um, by the prayers of uh, these students who are here tonight and the men and women who are online. God, I pray that you would use this as a, as a time to refresh them uh, before another season of, of busyness. God, I pray that they would never equate busyness with success that they would never equate proximity to a relationship. But Father, I pray that they would recognize that being in a relationship with you, walking with you daily, and being obedient, that's where success and relationship is found. So Father, I pray all of this in your Son's name, for their good, but yes, but also for your glory. And I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so...
Here it is. It's 920. We normally build this as from nine, or excuse me, 8 to 9.30. We normally shoot to be out of here at 9.15, but I overestimated how quickly, underestimated, I misestimated how much time it would take for all this stuff. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I love you guys. I'm glad you were here, Reagan, to help lead us, and you didn't lead out uh, in any individual song tonight. Come back next week. Help us out. So we were going to do just one song, but I feel like we're already going to be kind of going long, and let's just end it there. Um, here's what I want to encourage you guys to do. Um, one of our spiritual tasks this week, I think it was Monday, right? Yesterday, the only other one this week, was to ask your pastor how you can serve him. Dog, if that's you going and mowing your pastor's yard, don't be a lazy butt. Go mow your pastor's yard. If it's bringing your pastor's wife a bagel, do that. Man, reach out to your pastor. Ask them how you can serve them. And, and don't do this like, hey, I got bagels for pastor's wife, and there it is on Instagram and Snapchat. You do that, I'm going to kick you in the teeth, okay? This is not for show. This is for you serving those who love you and have an affection for you. Figure out how you might be able to serve them this week, yeah? Do that. That's what I would rather you do. Instead of us getting together and singing another song, as much as I would love to do that, I want us to end on that notion of go serve them somehow. And then maybe you ask them, like, hey, we talked about these things. How many hours a week do you spend doing that? Teach me what it is that you do so that you might have a greater appreciation for them. Yeah? Because I frankly feel like a lot of us are ignorant about what pastors actually do weekly. Yeah? All right. Let me pray for us. We'll be dismissed. We'll end right there. Okay? Uh, Father, I thank you for this time. Um, and even, as, even this moment, it's just like being difficult to contain the pastors that are being brought to mind right now for me to pray for um, and how I've even been burdened to pray for them after talking with them over the last couple of days. Um, Father, I thank you for that opportunity, and I pray that that same burden would rest on those who are in this room, that we would have a burden for our pastors and serving them in some way. Um, God, I pray that you would give us the, um, <laughs> the wherewithal to actually do that this week. God, I pray that you would give us the, the means to be able to serve them, if that's in some physical way, or even if it's just encouraging them, writing a letter, writing a little note, bringing a burger, whatever. God, I pray that you would give us a, a unique way to possibly serve our pastor and encourage them, and that frankly, that that would be um, fitting for the work of the kingdom, even in that moment. We would recognize it as such. And so, Father, I pray that you would use tonight in our understanding of how Paul was not... Um, stumbling into how you and your Trinitarian nature oversee salvation and how that trickles down to pastors communicating that to us and how we experience that. God, I pray that we would have a greater appreciation for how all of this actually works and that, God, ultimately it would end with more glory for you and worship in that regard. And so, Father, we thank you for your foreknowledge. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your sanctification. And Jesus, we thank you for sprinkling us with your blood, giving us salvation, accomplishing it for us, and calling us to obedience. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, before we bounce, next Thursday, Rye, what's up? Go bowling next Thursday. 22nd, we're going to go to Midland Bowl or family, whatever one's over on zero. Bowling World. Used to be Family Bowl, but it's Bowling World now, right? Yes. What time are we doing it on Thursday? Six to eight. It would be real helpful if you want to go, stick your hand in the air so we can kind of get a rough count right now. Right, do the counting. Yes, stick the hands up there, up high. Oh, there it is. There it is. Oh, no. Not that. 
All right, rock on. So if you got questions, talk with Rye. He will get you all sorted. If you didn't know, Rye knows what the little arrows on the ground mean. He can teach you as well. Um, yeah, the only reason I know what they mean is uh, I saw an episode of The Simpsons where Marge learns to bowl. Um, hey, just being honest. Yeah? Hey, man, you got all sorts of street cred. He's going to show it off on next Thursday. Yeah? Rock on. If you want to go, if you're online, if you want to come bowl with us, drop a line in there. Faith or myself will catch it. We'll moderate that chat. Other than that, hey, thank you guys for being here. Appreciate y'all sticking around even though it was a little bit longer. Do good. Don't sin. You're dismissed.